Section 10 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Alexander, Chapters 12 to 21. Among the many and grievous calamities which thus possessed the city, some Thracians broke into the house of Timoclea, a woman of high repute and chastity, and while the rest were plundering her property, their leader shamefully violated her, and then asked her if she had gold or silver concealed anywhere. She admitted that she had, and after leading him by himself into the garden, and showing him a well, told him that when the city was taken, she had with her own hands cast in there her most valuable possessions. Then, as the Thracian was bending over and inspecting the place, she came behind him and pushed him in, cast many stones upon him, and killed him. And when the Thracians led her, with hands bound to Alexander, she showed by her mien and gait that she was a person of great dignity and lofty spirit. So calmly and fearlessly did she follow her conductors. And when the king asked her who she was, she replied that she was a sister of Theagenes, who drew up the forces which fought Philip in behalf of the liberty of the Greeks, and fell in command at Chironea. Amazed, therefore, at her reply, and at what she had done, Alexander bade her depart in freedom with her children. Furthermore, he was reconciled with the Athenians, although they showed exceeding sorrow at the misfortunes of Thebes. For although they had begun the festival of the mysteries, they gave it up in consequence of their grief. Footnote. According to Arian, it was from panic fright. End footnote. And upon the Thebans, who sought refuge in the city, they bestowed every kindness. But notwithstanding this, whether his rage was now sated as a lion's might be, or whether he wished to offset a deed of the most sullen savagery with one that was merciful, he not only remitted all his charges against the city, but even bade it give good heed to its affairs, since, if anything should happen to him, it would have the rule over Greece. In later times, moreover, as we are told, the calamity of the Thebans often gave him remorse, and made him milder towards many people. And certainly, the murder of Cletus, which he committed in his cups, footnote, see chapter 51, end footnote, and the cowardly refusal of his Macedonians to follow him against the Indians, footnote, see chapter 62, end footnote, whereby they as it were robbed his expedition and his glory of their consummation, he was wont to attribute to the vengeful wrath of Dionysus. Footnote. This god was said to have been born of Semele, daughter of Cadmus, the founder of Thebes. End footnote. And there was not a Theban of those that survived who afterwards came to him with any request, and did not get what he wanted from him. Thus much concerning Thebes. Footnote. For a full account of Alexander's capture and destruction of Thebes, see Arian. End footnote. And now a general assembly of the Greeks was held at the Isthmus, where a vote was passed to make an expedition against Persia with Alexander, and he was proclaimed their leader. Thereupon many statesmen and philosophers came to him with their congratulations, and he expected that Diogenes of Sinope, also who was tarrying in Corinth, would do likewise. But since that philosopher took not the slightest notice of Alexander, and continued to enjoy his leisure in the suburb Cranion, Alexander went in person to see him, and he found him lying in the sun. Diogenes raised himself up a little, 
when he saw so many persons coming towards him, and fixed his eyes upon Alexander. And when that monarch addressed him with greetings, and asked if he wanted anything, Yes, said Diogenes, stand a little out of my son. It is said that Alexander was so struck by this, and admired so much the haughtiness and grandeur of the man who had nothing but scorn for him, that he said to his followers, who were laughing and jesting about the philosopher as they went away, But verily, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. And now, wishing to consult the god concerning the expedition against Asia, he went to Delphi, and since he chanced to come on one of the inauspicious days, when it is not lawful to deliver oracles, in the first place he sent a summons to the prophetess, and when she refused to perform her office, and cited the law in her excuse, he went up himself and tried to drag her to the temple, whereupon, as if overcome by his ardour, she said, Thou art invincible, my son. On hearing this, Alexander said he desired no further prophecy, but had from her the oracle which he wanted. Moreover, when he set out upon his expedition, footnote in the early spring of 334 BC, end footnote, it appears that there were many signs from heaven, and among them the image of Orpheus, at Libethra, it was made of cypress wood, sweated profusely at about that time. Most people feared the sign, but Aristander bade Alexander be of good cheer, assured that he was to perform deeds worthy of song and story, which would cost poets and musicians much toil and sweat to celebrate. As to the number of his forces, those who put it at the smallest figure mentioned 30,000 foot, and 4,000 horse. Those who put it at the highest, 43,000 foot and 5,000 horse. Footnote. Quote, Not much more than 30,000 foot, including light-armed troops and archers, and over 5,000 horse. End quote. Arian. End footnote. To provision these forces, Aristobulus says he had not more than 70 talents. Durus speaks of maintenance for only 30 days, and Onesicritus says he owed 200 talents besides. But although he set out with such meagre and narrow resources, he would not set foot upon his ship until he had inquired into the circumstances of his companions and allotted to one a farm, to another a village, and to another the revenue from some hamlet or harbour. And when at last nearly all of the crown property had been expended or allotted, Perdiccas said to him, But for thyself, O king, what art thou leaving? And when the king answered, My hopes. In these then, said Perdiccas, we also will share who make the expedition with thee. Then he declined the possessions which had been allotted to him, and some of the other friends of Alexander did likewise. But upon those who wanted and would accept his favours, Alexander bestowed them readily. And most of what he possessed in Macedonia was used up in these distributions. Such was the ardour and such the equipment with which he crossed the Hellespont. Then going up to Ilium, he sacrificed to Athena and poured libations to the heroes. Furthermore, the gravestone of Achilles he anointed with oil, ran a race by it with his companions, naked as is the custom, and then crowned it with garlands, pronouncing the hero happy in having, while he lived, a faithful friend, and after death, a great herald of his fame. As he was going about and viewing the sights of the city, someone asked him if he wished to see the lyre of Paris. For that lyre said Alexander, I care very little, but I would gladly see that of Achilles, to which he used to sing the glorious deeds of brave men. Meanwhile, the generals of Darius had assembled a large force, and set it in array at the crossing of the river Granicus, so that it was practically necessary to fight, as it were at the gates of Asia, 
for entrance and dominion there. But most of the Macedonian officers were afraid of the depth of the river, and of the roughness and unevenness of the farther banks, up which they would have to climb while fighting. Some, too, thought they ought to observe carefully the customary practice in regard to the month, for in the month of Decius, the kings of Macedonia would not want to take the field with an army. This objection Alexander removed by bidding them call the month a second Artemisius, and when Parmenio, on the ground that it was too late in the day, objected to their risking the passage, he declared that the Hellespont would blush for shame if, after having crossed that strait, he should be afraid of the Granicus, and plunged into the stream with thirteen troops of horsemen. And since he was charging against hostile mythals and precipitous positions covered with infantry and cavalry, and through a stream that swept men off their feet and surged about them, he seemed to be acting like a frenzied and foolish commander, rather than a wise one. However, he persisted in his attempt to cross, gained the opposite banks with difficulty and much ado, though they were moist and slippery with mud, and was at once compelled to fight pell-mell and engage his assailants man by man before his troops who were crossing could form into any order. For the enemy pressed upon them with loud shouts, and matching horse with horse plied their lances and their swords when their lances were shattered. Many rushed upon Alexander, for he was conspicuous by his buckler and by his helmet's crest, on either side of which was fixed a plume of wonderful size and whiteness. But although a javelin pierced the joint of his breastplate, he was not wounded. And when Rosaces and Spithridates, two Persian commanders, made at him together, he avoided the one, and smote Rosaces, who wore a breastplate with his spear. And when this weapon snapped in two with a blow, he took to his sword. Then, while he was thus engaged with Rosaces, Spithridates rode up from one side, raised himself up on his horse, and with all his might came down with a barbarian battle-axe upon Alexander's head. Alexander's crest was broken off, together with one of its plumes, and his helmet could barely and with difficulty resist the blow, so that the edge of the battle-axe touched the topmost hair of his head. But while Spithridates was raising his arm again for another stroke, Cletus, Black Cletus, got the start of him and ran him through the body with his spear. At the same time, Rosaces also fell, smitten by Alexander's sword. While Alexander's cavalry were making such a dangerous and furious fight, the Macedonian phalanx crossed the river and the infantry forces on both sides engaged. The enemy, however, did not resist vigorously, nor for a long time, but fled in a rout all except the Greek mercenaries. These made a stand at a certain eminence and asked that Alexander should promise them quarter. But he, influenced by anger more than by reason, charged foremost upon them and lost his horse, which was smitten through the ribs with a sword. It was not Bucephalus, but another. And most of the Macedonians, who were slain or wounded, fought or fell there, since they came to close quarters with men who knew how to fight and were desperate. Of the barbarians, we are told, 20,000 footmen fell, and 2,500 horsemen. Footnote. Diodorus says that more than 10,000 Persian footmen fell, and not less than 2,000 horsemen, while over 20,000 were taken prisoners. End footnote. But on Alexander's side, Aristobulus says there were 34 dead in all, of whom 9 were footmen. Of these, then, Alexander ordered statues to be set up in bronze, and Lysippus wrought them. Footnote. According to Arian, about 25 of Alexander's companions, a select corps, fell at the first onset, and it was of these that Alexander ordered statues to be made by Lysippus. End footnote. Moreover, desiring to make the Greeks partners in his victory, he sent to the Athenians in particular 300 of the captured shields, and upon the rest of the spoils in general, 
he ordered a most ambitious inscription to be wrought. Alexander, the son of Philip, and all the Greeks except the Lacedaemonians, from the barbarians who dwell in Asia. But the drinking vessels and the purple robes, and whatever things of this nature he took from the Persians, all these, except a few, he sent to his mother. This contest at once made a great change in the situation to Alexander's advantage, so that he received the submission, even of Sardis, the bulwark of the barbarian dominion on the sea-coast, and added the rest of the country to his conquests. Halicarnassus alone withstood him, and Miletus, which cities he took by storm, and subdued all the territories about them. Footnote. The siege and capture of these cities occupied Alexander till the late autumn of 334 BC. End footnote. Then he was in doubt as to his future course. Many times he was eager to encounter Darius and put the whole issue to hazard, and many times he would make up his mind to practice himself first, as it were, and strengthen himself by acquiring the regions along the sea with their resources, and then to go up against that monarch. Now, there is in Lycia, near the city of Xanthus, a spring, which at this time, as we are told, was of its own motion upheaved from its depths and overflowed and cast forth a bronze tablet bearing the prints of ancient letters, in which it was made known that the empire of the Persians would one day be destroyed by the Greeks and come to an end. Encouraged by this prophecy, Alexander hastened to clear up the sea coast as far as Cilicia and Phoenicia. His rapid passage along the coasts of Pamphylia has afforded many historians material for bombastic and terrifying description. They imply that by some great and heaven-sent good fortune, the sea retired to make way for Alexander, although at other times it always came rolling in with violence from the main, and scarcely ever revealed to sight the small rocks which lie close up under the precipitous and riven sides of the mountain. Footnote. According to Arian, there is no route along this beach, except when the north wind blows. Quote, but at that time, after strong south winds, the north wind blew, and rendered his passage easy and quick, not without the divine intervention as both he and his followers interpreted. End quote. End footnote. And Menander, in one of his comedies, evidently refers jestingly to this marvel. How Alexander-like indeed this is, and if I seek some one, spontaneous he'll present himself, and if I clearly must pass through some place by sea, this will lie open to my steps. Alexander himself, however, made no such prodigy out of it in his letters, but says that he marched by way of the so-called ladder, and passed through it, setting out from Phasilis. This was the reason for his spending several days in that city, during which he noticed that a statue of Theodectus, a deceased citizen of Phasilis, had been erected in the marketplace. Once, therefore, after supper and in his cups, he led a band of revellers to the statue and crowned it with many of their garlands, thus in pleasantry returning no ungraceful honour for the past association with the man which he owed to Aristotle and philosophy. After this, he overpowered such of the Pisidians as had offered him resistance and subdued Phrygia, and after he had taken the city of Gordium, footnote, early in 333 BC, end footnote, reputed to have been the home of the ancient Midas, he saw the much-talked-of wagon bound fast to its yoke with bark of the cornel tree, and heard a story confidently told about it by the barbarians, to the effect that whosoever loosed the fastening was destined to become king of the whole world. Well then, most writers say that since the fastenings had their ends concealed and were intertwined many times in crooked coils, Alexander was at a loss how to proceed, and finally loosened the knot by cutting it through with his sword, and that when it was thus smitten many ends were to be seen. But Aristobulus says that he undid it very easily, by simply taking out the so-called hester or pin of the wagon-pole, 
by which the yoke fastening was held together, and then drawing away the yoke. Setting out from there, he subdued Paphlagonia and Cappadocia, and on hearing of the death of Memnon, one of the commanders of Darius on the seaboard, who was thought likely to give Alexander abundant trouble and infinite annoyance, he was all the more encouraged for his expedition into the interior. Moreover, Darius was already coming down to the coast from Susa, exalted in spirit by the magnitude of his forces, for he was leading an army of 600,000 men, and also encouraged by a certain dream, which the Magi interpreted in a way to please him rather than as the probabilities demanded. For he dreamed that the Macedonian phalanx was all on fire, and that Alexander, attired in a robe which he himself formerly used to wear when he was a royal courier, was waiting upon him, after which service he passed into the temple of Belus and disappeared. By this means, as it would seem, it was suggested to Darius from heaven that the exploit of the Macedonians would be conspicuous and brilliant, that Alexander would be master of Asia just as Darius became its master when he was made king instead of royal courier, and would speedily end his life with glory. Darius was still more encouraged by Alexander's long delay in Cilicia, which he attributed to cowardice. The delay was due, however, to a sickness which assailed him in consequence of fatigues, according to some, but according to others because he took a bath in the river Kidnus, whose waters were icy cold. Be that as it may, none of the other physicians had the courage to administer remedies, but thinking that the danger was too great to be overcome by any remedy whatever, they were afraid of the charges which would be made against them by the Macedonians in consequence of their failure. But Philip, the Acarnanian, who saw that the king was in evil plight, put confidence in his friendship, and thinking it a shameful thing not to share his peril by exhausting the resources of art in trying to help him even at great risk, prepared a medicine and persuaded him to drink it boldly if he was anxious to regain his strength for the war. Meanwhile, however, Parmenio sent a letter to Alexander from the camp, urging him to be on his guard against Philip, for the reason that he had been persuaded by Darius, with the promise of large gifts and a marriage with his daughter to kill Alexander. Alexander read the letter, and placed it under his pillow without showing it to any one of his friends. When the time appointed was at hand, and Philip came in with the king's companions carrying the medicine in a cup, Alexander handed him the letter, while he himself took the medicine from him with readiness, and no sign of suspicion. It was an amazing sight then, and one well worthy of the stage, the one reading the letter, the other drinking the medicine, and then both together turning their eyes upon one another, but not with the same expression. For Alexander, by his glad and open countenance, showed his good will towards Philip and his trust in him, while Philip was beside himself at the calumny, now lifting up his hands towards heaven and calling upon the gods to witness his innocence, and now falling upon the couch on which Alexander lay and beseeching him to be of good courage and obey his physician. For at first the medicine mastered the patient, and as it were drove back and buried deep his bodily powers, so that his voice failed. He fell into a swoon and became almost wholly unconscious. However, he was speedily restored to his senses by Philip, and when he had recovered strength, he showed himself to the Macedonians, who refused to be comforted until they had seen Alexander. Now there was in the army of Darius a certain Macedonian who had fled from his country, Amintas by name, and he was well acquainted with the nature of Alexander. This man, when he saw that Darius was eager to attack Alexander within the narrow passes of the mountains, begged him to remain where he was, that he might fight a decisive battle with his vast forces against inferior numbers in plains that were broad and spacious. And when Darius replied that he was afraid the enemy would run away before he could get at them, and Alexander thus escape him, Indeed, said Amintas on this point, O king, thou mayest be without fear, for he will march against thee, nay, at this very moment, probably, 
He is on the march. Darius would not listen to these words of Amintas, but broke camp and marched into Cilicia, and at the same time Alexander marched into Syria against him. But having missed one another in the night, they both turned back again, Alexander rejoicing in his good fortune and eager to meet his enemy in the passes, while Darius was as eager to extricate his forces from the passes and regain his former camping ground. For he already saw that he had done wrong to throw himself into places which were rendered unfit for cavalry by sea and mountains and a river running through the middle, the Pinarus, which were broken up in many parts and favoured the small numbers of his enemy. And not only was the place for the battle a gift of fortune to Alexander, but his generalship was better than the provisions of fortune for his victory. For since he was so vastly inferior in numbers to the barbarians, he gave them no opportunity to encircle him, but, leading his right wing in person, extended it past the enemy's left, got on their flank, and routed the barbarians who were opposed to him, fighting among the foremost, so that he got a sword wound in the thigh. Caris says this wound was given him by Darius, with whom he had a hand-to-hand -hand combat, but Alexander, in a letter to Antipater about the battle, did not say who it was that gave him the wound. He wrote that he had been wounded in the thigh with a dagger, but that no serious harm resulted from the wound. Although he won a brilliant victory and destroyed more than 110,000 of his enemies, he did not capture Darius, who got a start of four or five furlongs in his flight. But he did take the king's chariot and his bow before he came back from the pursuit. He found his Macedonians carrying off the wealth from the camp of the barbarians, and the wealth was of surpassing abundance, although its owners had come to the battle in light marching order and had left most of their baggage in Damascus. He found, too, that his men had picked out for him the tent of Darius, which was full to overflowing with gorgeous servitors and furniture and many treasures. Straightway then Alexander put off his armour and went to the bath, saying, Let us go and wash off the sweat of the battle in the bath of Darius. No, indeed, said one of his companions, but rather in that of Alexander, for the property of the conquered must belong to the conqueror and be called his. And when he saw the basins and pitchers and tubs and caskets, all of gold and curiously wrought, while the apartment was marvellously fragrant with spices and unguents, and when he passed from this into a tent which was worthy of admiration for its size and height, and for the adornment of the couch and tables and banquet prepared for him, he turned his eyes upon his companions and said, This, as it would seem, is to be a king. As he was betaking himself to supper, someone told him that among the prisoners were the mother, wife, and two unmarried daughters of Darius, and that at sight of his chariot and bow, they beat their breasts and lamented, believing that he was dead. Accordingly, after a considerable pause, more affected by their affliction than by his own success, he sent Leonatus with orders to tell them that Darius was not dead, and that they need have no fear of Alexander, for it was Darius upon whom he was waging war for supremacy, but they should have everything which they used to think their due when Darius was undisputed king. If this message was thought by the women to be mild and kindly, still more did the actions of Alexander prove to be humane for he gave them permission to bury whom they pleased of the Persians, and to use for this purpose raiment and adornments from the spoils, and he abated not one jot of their honourable maintenance. Nay, they enjoyed even larger allowances than before. But the most honourable and most princely favour which these noble and chaste women received from him in their captivity was that they neither heard, nor suspected, nor awaited anything that could disgrace them, but lived, as though guarded in sacred and inviolable virgin's chambers, instead of in an enemy's camp, apart from the speech and sight of men. And yet it is said that the wife of Darius was far the most comely of all royal women, just as Darius himself also was handsomest and tallest of men, and the daughters resembled their parents.
But Alexander, as it would seem, considering the mastery of himself a more kingly thing than the conquest of his enemies, neither laid hands upon these women, nor did he know any other before marriage except Barsim. This woman, Memnon's widow, was taken prisoner at Damascus, and since she had received a Greek education, and was of an agreeable disposition, and since her father Artabazus was son of a king's daughter, Alexander determined, at Parmenio's instigation, as Aristobulus says, to attach himself to a woman of such high birth and beauty. But as for the other captive women, seeing that they were surpassingly stately and beautiful, he merely said jestingly that Persian women were torments to the eyes, and displaying in rivalry with their fair looks the beauty of his own sobriety and self-control, he passed them by as though they were lifeless images for display. End of section 10